This is my comeback story. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. Welcome back. My name is Trey Lewis. I'm very excited to be here today with Georgia Overdose Prevention with Lori and Robin. Uh, so excited and honored to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Um, we just finished up doing training with the staff and uh, with the clients here at Good Landing. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just in the midst of, uh, you know, this drug epidemic. I mean, according to Time Magazine, over 20 million drug addicts in the United States over the age of 12 years old. And to make sure that we're fighting on, on every front um, to, you know, the, 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 you know, from the overdose uh, issue to, you know, making sure that whenever they get into treatment that we're fighting that and empowering them with everything that they need. So um, if one of y'all would just start and just tell us a little bit about Georgia Overdose Prevention. We are a grassroots group of people that came together back in 2012 to try to get a law passed as a result of, most, for the most part, our own personal circumstances. Um, from my perspective, uh, my son Zach was uh, a beautiful, bright, talented, sweet kid. And at the age of 16, he started using drugs. Um, I found out about it. He went to various treatment facilities and um, sort of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, in and out. And um, eventually it led, unfortunately, to uh, a heroin overdose on May 1st, 2011. He was 21. Wow. Now you said 2011? Yes. And so, and, and w- when did you start? When, when did he start going to treatment? Sat when, first of all, I'm a person in long-term recovery, and mm-hmm. what that means to me is that it's been over 28 years since I've had my last mind or mood-altering substance. Yeah. Um, so Zach knew his whole life that um, there, that he had a potential for substance use disorder as mm-hmm. just a result of his genetics. Um, when he was 16, he called me from a party and asked me to come get him because he didn't want to be involved. The kids were going to smoke weed. Um, and he was really trying to stay away from it. Uh, a couple of weeks later, he went to another party. The kids were smoking. He tried it. And three months later, he had tried every drug there was to try. Yeah. So, I mean, it kicked in with him like nobody's business. And um, he went and spent (coughs) his whole junior year in high school um, in Utah in a wilderness program and then in a residential facility. Came back, gradually ramped back up. At the end of his freshman year of college, he came to me and said, I'm done. I want to get better. And he spent a year and a half living in a recovery community outside Nashville, Tennessee. Mm You know, kind of did did okay, seven months, then he'd relapse, five months, then he'd relapse, and eventually he met a girl, unfortunately. I mean, I don't blame it on her, because we're all responsible for our own, sure. our own destiny, I mean, our own, um, you know, what happens to us, but uh, she had 60 days, and he had seven months, and anybody that's ever worked a program knows that somebody with 60 days and somebody with seven months have no business trying to start a relationship, yeah. but unfortunately they did, they relapsed together, and that led to... Um, kind of a, a four-month period where he was in and out, not not in a recovery place, just using, not using, using, not using. And on May 1st, 2011, uh, he passed. Yeah. I know that we're going to talk about overdose prevention and what that can look like. Um, you know, a lot of people that, that listen are, are parents of, of you know, they've, they've got their children that mm-hmm. they're, they're on the front end of this journey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're you're meeting with these parents. You know, they've just found out that this is a real issue. 
Um, what, what, what is, what, I mean, talk to us about that. I wish so much that I had a, like a really clear answer of what to tell people. Because honestly, as a person in long-term recovery, I feel like I was, I tried so hard and I did everything. And I was on the front, a lot of parents we meet don't even know their kids are using mm-hmm. for a while. I mean, I knew right away. I mean, I was there. I knew. To be honest, for me, when people ask me, what would you do differently? What I say is, I spent all my time saying, stop using, stop using, stop using. And what I wish I had included, not instead of, but included in my messaging was, but if you are going to use, please use safely because dead people do not recover. Yeah. So please use safely. And that includes um, never, number one to me, the biggest one of all is never use alone. Because if you use alone, there's no one to call 911 and there's no one to administer Narcan. Yeah. Um, you know, don't ever, if you're using something from somebody that you've never dealt with before, make sure you, you use a small quantity at first to make sure that you don't overdose. Um, have Narcan available and make sure that the people that you're with know where it is and how to administer it. So there's a number of things that can be done to help people to use safely so that eventually they can get to that place because I think people get to that place of wanting, really wanting recovery Mm -hmm. and being willing to immerse themselves in it at different times. But if you're dead, you're never gonna get to that threshold. That's right. Yeah, that's good. I mean, when you you talk about, um, you know, being in, in recovery yourself, what do you think as far as, I mean, a lot of the parents, that they're wanting to know that they don't have a background in it. You know, they're starting to see this, you know, with, you know, with their child. Do you think more of a, a tough approach or do you think a, an easy, you know, what, what does that look like? I don't necessarily think, I think that all that tough love, people have really tried it. And first of all, let me say that I don't think what works for one person always works for the next person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I think sure. to try to, when we try to make something like a one, one size fits all in any kind of recovery, I don't know that that necessarily works. Yeah. Um, I know that, I know a lot of people that have tried that tough love and, and their kid died. I know a lot of people that did it the other way and let their kids use in their basement and their kid died. So I think, the most important thing is to try to figure it out in terms of what you think would work best for your child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think for me, the most, 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 most important thing is to, to talk about it to other people to, mm-hmm. because so many parents are so stigmatized and so ashamed because of what society says about them that they don't ever really explore the avenues that are available to them. Yeah. They sit home and, 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 and ring their, you know, just are so nervous and worried. But I found out so much after my son died. And I'm a person in recovery. And I still found out so much after my son died. So many avenues that were could have been available to me that I didn't know about, you know. So I think um, I think opening the door, Al-Anon, for parents to go to Al-Anon, for parents to go to Families Anonymous, for parents to be willing to ask the questions. If your child had cancer, you would call every single person you knew. You would call every doctor that you knew. You would find the very best doctor there is. You would splash that information everywhere to get yeah. the best. But when your child has a substance use disorder, oh my gosh, you tell two people. In the shadows. In the shadows because mm-hmm. you're so ashamed and, mm. and, and, and guilt-ridden. Yeah, 
Yeah, feeling like a failure as a parent. Absolutely. Feeling like, yeah, Absolutely. yeah, you just something, yeah. And all there's your... so much family shaming out there. Yeah. People shame the families all the time. And so the more that goes on, the deeper, the, the bigger the stigma gets. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's huge. Because, it, I mean, it really is. I mean, it's just even with all the education, I mean, understanding that it, that it is a medical condition, I mean, still, you know, so much of society looks at it through it through a different paradigm. They do. And, um, and I just, I think that's, that's just such a good point, um, you know, as parents of just, you know, walk through that, you know, don't let that hinder you to keep, you know, prevent you from finding the absolute best place for them. So this event becomes a, a catalyst for you to be, to, to take this path, path through getting legislation changed. Yeah. And uh-huh. I always say the way that it happened and uh, it is just it, it was just a freakish thing. Zach died on on May um, was buried on May 7th on May 8th an article came out in the AJC about three kids that had died of a heroin overdose. The next day, mm. I wrote to the reporter. I don't know why. I mean, I was deep in my grief, but I wrote to her. Yeah. She wrote me a very nice email back. That was the end of it. 3 months later, she called me. She said I'm going down to an area in Atlanta where there's a lot of heroin use and we're doing an article, do you want to go? I said, okay, not for any reason, just because I was heartbroken and had nothing, I was looking for meaning in yeah. my life. I went with her. Article came out in the AJC, had pictures of Zach, it talked about the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition, I learned about harm reduction, I'd never known what that was. That, then that was that. Eight months later, the person that ran the Atlanta Harm Reduction Co- Coalition called me and said, People are thinking about getting a law passed. Are you interested in trying to help it? It really felt so much like it was a momentum that I wasn't in control of that was just happening with dominoes falling that were just one after the other. And then we went down and, and four of us were there trying to talking about trying to get this law passed. And we're all, you know, I always affectionately describe us as a bunch of idiots trying to get a law passed because we didn't know what we were doing. And then, and then Lori came in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm a nurse, yeah. and um, in 2012, I had two of my close friends' sons overdosed on heroin. I live in East Cobb, um, Marietta, and um, and then um, after that, I became aware that there was an, you know an issue, and then later that year, uh, it hit the street I live on, and. Um, my friend at the bottom of my street, her son was using, and um, she was scared to death. And so I just started trying to come up with a plan in my head for what I would do if she called me in the middle of the night. Because when you're a nurse, um, people call you before they call 911, you yeah, know, right. your neighbors. Yeah, right. And um, so I was just trying to come up with a plan. And um, uh, I knew about Narcan naloxone because we had it um, on my floor in the hospital Um, and I thought well if I could just get my hands on some naloxone then if she calls me I can run down the street I can give him a shot of uh, naloxone and hopefully restore his breathing again if he's taken opiates and um, so I just started searching for you know how do I get two vials of Narcan and a couple of syringes online and I, uh, my internet search led me to a man in North Carolina who ran a harm reduction coalition there. Um, like Robin, I didn't know what harm reduction was. That wasn't something they taught us in, in nursing school. Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew it looked like he knew how to get his hands on some naloxone. And um, 
Long story short, he came down, he gave me two vials, and then started telling me they were trying to get a law passed in North Carolina to allow lay people to have access to naloxone and to be able to call 911 at the scene of an overdose and not be arrested um, if there were drugs or paraphernalia at the scene. And I don't know, it just grabbed me. I still, you know, I just always say I've never kind of been grabbed by something like that, but it just struck me as so unfair that at that time there were about 10 states that already had this law. So if you had a loved one who was at risk of overdose, you could go and get this medication and probably sleep a lot better at night knowing you had something on hand and, you know, save their life if you needed to. And I was just, I was just blown away that we didn't have that law in Georgia. And so, um, I just decided I wanted to work towards that, and uh, this fellow from North Carolina, his name's Robert Childs, he he hooked me up with the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition, and that's how I came to join Robin and Mona Bennett down in Atlanta Harm, and a couple other people who had the same interests, so. Wow. Yeah, it just all fit together. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really just seems like a divinely inspired journey I mean for I always for go like this when I tell the story because I I point I'm pointing up <laughs> I always yeah. point up when I'm telling the story because it it feels yeah I mean, like something like, bigger was at work oh yeah absolutely yeah. so I mean so y'all have been doing this for for years now I mean I just I mean talk about the I mean the impact of the program yeah, so the law actually was signed, the bill was signed into law on April 24th, 2014. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing it since then. And Lori is really the backbone. She's, you know, she's the, the backbone of the everyday operation of the program. So I'll throw it to her for that. <laughs> so we, um, the way we operate is we have uh, volunteers who are trained to be kit distributors throughout the state of Georgia. And so when people contact us through our website or our Facebook page or our Instagram page or just our email address and say that they know someone at risk for an overdose, then we assign our kit distributor who lives closest to this person throughout the state of Georgia, wherever they are. Um, They reach out and we usually meet people at a Starbucks or, you know, some fast food place do a quick training on Narcan and give them a rescue kit. Um, Doing that in in partnership with Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition because we consider them our partners. So they distribute kind of in the downtown Atlanta area. Um, We do the rest of the state of Georgia. Um, And we've given out now approximately a little bit over 38,000 free Narcan rescue kits. Um, and we ask people to contact us um, through our email address if they've used one of our kits for a reversal. And we know to date that our kits have reversed <coughs> 2,389 people successfully. Wow. Those are the ones we know about. Wow. Um, and so we make the kits um, in my living room, actually, and AHARC makes them theirs down at their offices. And we just try to get them into the hands of, of people who, you know, know someone at risk mm-hmm. um, just to try to keep them breathing. I yeah. mean, we're, we're hoping that people, you know, are in uh, 
a state where they will pursue a healthier lifestyle and get into recovery. But even if they don't, we we want to give them the tool to keep them breathing. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's our deal. Yeah, that's incredible. What um, can you give us a just a sort of a, a medical summary of of what takes place? I mean, somebody overdoses. Okay. What, what, so when someone overdoses, we all have opioid receptors in our central nervous system, our brain, our spinal cord, even our gastrointestinal tract, mm-hmm. um, because our bodies make a natural type opioid endorphins, like if we do certain activities, run a marathon, eat chocolate, whatever, right. um, those endorphins latch on to those opioid receptors, and then chemicals are released in your body like dopamine um, and some other chemicals that make you feel good. So when someone overdoses, the opioids that they take into their body, the molecules latch onto those opioid receptors and causes the same thing, causes those chemicals to be released that cause euphoria and things like that. But unfortunately, opioids are in a class of medication called respiratory depressants. And so as the person's receptors are being saturated by the opioids it causes a person to breathe fewer and fewer times per minute and they take more and more and more shallow breaths each time so that eventually they don't have enough oxygen in their bloodstream and become we call it hypoxia Um, so they become hypoxic they don't have enough oxygen and your heart muscle needs oxygen to be your brain of course needs oxygen and so eventually that just spirals down until there's a, a tragic ending to that story but fortunately those very same receptors prefer naloxone over opioids for a certain amount of time so if someone is overdosing and you can get narcan into their body the narcan molecules will come and they will rip off the opioid molecules that are sitting on those receptors and take their place and then they just sit there they're not respiratory depressants narcan is not a respiratory depressant so when that occurs that's when a person can take a big breath again because their respiratory urge is not being depressed it also because it's ripping off those opioids Mm -hmm. throws a person into withdrawal and so they don't feel good at all when that happens Mm -hmm. it's um no one wants to be narcan they'll they'll tell you because it it makes you feel like you know the flu times a million (laughs) but they can breathe yeah So that's how it works, and it works like that for 30 to 90 minutes. For 30 to 90 minutes, the Narcan will take the place of the opioids on those cells. But after a certain amount of time, 30 to 90 minutes, the Narcan will just kind of wear off, and the opioids can actually reattach, and the person can go back into their overdose Mm -hmm. without taking any more substances. So that's why it's important whenever you get Narcan, there's there's at least two doses in there because you may have to reverse somebody and 30 to 90 minutes later, if they refuse, let's say, transport to a hospital or something, you may have to reverse them again. Send them back in to Mm -hmm. to overdose. Mm -hmm. But normally if you did the second one, then they would wear off typically not going back into overdose a third time. No. But it, it, it could... 
it, it can happen. We're seeing it actually quite a bit in people who are taking counterfeit pills that have fentanyl in them. We're seeing in the ERs that people are going back into the overdose. Because the pills take a long time to dissolve in the stomach. So I they see. dissolve partially, they yeah. overdose, and then they... It's like they're getting hit with the second, yes. third wave. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the fentanyl, more potent than... Yes, way more potent than heroin and morphine. I see. So, and it's in everything in Georgia now. The GBI has found it in everything except pot. So it's it's big into cocaine. We've lost a lot of um, people who did cocaine and didn't even know they were doing opiates, but there was fentanyl in the cocaine. Do we um, know? So, so the purpose behind that on a dealer using this, I mean, is it just a cheaper alternative to it's cheap and it stretches the product and it makes it stronger so um, you know sometimes when stuff gets down to Georgia it's been stepped down and cut so many times it's not as strong as maybe people would like it to be and so it makes a stronger product it stretches it out so they make more money and it's cheap and it's it's easy to hide it's easy to transport you know just a little bit of it Goes a long way. Goes a long way. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in an in an overdose situation, um, that um, you know that that they they reverse the overdose, um, they call paramedics, and the law enforcement shows up. Paramedics, everybody shows up. There's drugs in the house. You know, talk with us a little bit about legislation surrounding. You know, drugs that would still still be in the house, or somebody that calls that. Well, actually, when our law, when we passed the law, it had two components, and the first component was don't run, call nine one one. And what that part of the law says is that if you're in the presence of someone that's overdosing, and um, you call nine one one, and you stay with the victim until help arrives, that's key. You stay with the victim until help arrives. Neither the caller nor the victim can be arrested, charged, or prosecuted in the state of Georgia for personal use quantities of drugs or for paraphernalia. They can't be violated on parole or on probation or if they have conditions to pretrial release. It does not cover outstanding warrants, however. Okay. And uh, Lori can tell you what the exact quantities are for personal use. Okay. So they're actually larger quantities, even though we use the term personal use. Um, We wanted our law to protect people at highest risk, and that's people who may be using every day multiple times a day. People in our organization and um, who became affiliated with us, you know, a lot of them had lost loved ones and they didn't want to work on a bill that was going to protect traffickers. But we did want to protect people at highest risk. Um, And so the amounts we put in there are larger amounts than you might think. Um, So if you have less than four grams of a solid substance. Less than four grams of a solid substance mixed in a secondary medium where the combined weight is less than four grams, less than an ounce of pot, or less than one milliliter of liquid, say in a spoon or a cooker or a syringe, you get immunity. And most people inject intravenously with insulin type syringes Mm -hmm. and the entire thing filled to the very top only holds one ml mm-hmm. so if they just have a little bit less than the entire thing filled they would get immunity for that okay so greater than four grams is trafficking so again just trying to encourage we try to keep people alive so trying to encourage people to call 911 a lot of the people that were involved in originally getting the law passed 
had children, um, including one mom from here in Gwinnett County, mm-hmm. who who's, who's, um, their children were overdosing and the people that were with them did not call 911. And, um, you know, I think, I, I like to think that the, the people that were did not call thought that the kid was gonna snap out of it, but he didn't and he died. Wow. Um, and we're just trying to keep people alive. Yeah, yeah. We've heard a lot of stories of people who, at the very beginning when our law passed, were still getting pulled up on charges because of uh, mm-hmm. drugs at the scene or paraphernalia. But then people would just download our law from our website, <laughs> take it to their public defender, and it would get thrown out. Yeah. Okay. So um, people shouldn't be scared to call. People shouldn't be scared to administer yeah. naloxone to anyone that you feel is is in trouble because the way our law is written it says if you suspect a person is overdosing so they don't even actually have to even be overdosing if it turns out they've had a heart attack or they're in a diabetic coma um, or they've overdosed on say benzos or something that's Mm -hmm. not an opiate you're still covered that you gave Narcan gotcha Um, you can't get in trouble for that okay Mm -hmm. perfect and, and then what if they thought that, but there was no Narcan? Do you know if there's... If they thought they were... Yeah, so for example, if they thought somebody was going to overdose, but there was no Narcan, and they still call the absence of Narcan, is it the same? Oh, it's the same. It's they, the same. No trouble. Okay. No trouble all right. at all. I don't know if that was a qualifier. No, it's not. Legislation. Okay. It's not. What else about Narcan? Maybe a question that I didn't ask um, that people need, need to be aware of. You can get it without a prescription mm-hmm. at any pharmacy in the state of Georgia. Um, you just need to. You can just go in and say, "I know a person at risk of overdose," and they should sell it to you. Um, the Narcan nasal spray version is covered by um, about ninety-seven percent of commercial insurances, and it's also on many of the Medicaid and Medicare plans. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's um, affordable. Um, anybody that knows a person at risk can also write us at info at Georgia Overdose Prevention, all written out, dot org, and we'll arrange to have one of our distributors um, come see you and help you out. Okay. Um, if someone is, if, it, if Narcan is administered to someone that's not overdosing, it has no effect. Yeah, so there's no worry about, you know, Nope. Kids running around with it, getting, you know, what they might think. The only might be. thing it does is what Lori said. It rips those molecules off, and if those molecules aren't there, it has no effect. Right, so just, okay. And if you've got it, use it regardless of the expiration date. All of the research shows that it lasts years and years and years and years past the, most the expiration date. 28 years with wow. zero failures. Yeah. Wow. So it's an incredible, strong, incredible medication. Yeah. Yeah. So we do have a, a few really like like kind of good stories about Narcan and, and people that have gotten it and 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 what it seems like whenever we go and talk to a facility, someone comes up and tells us a great story because we feel that our kits find their way mm-hmm. into the hands of the people that are supposed to have them yep. somehow. So um, we always feel like there's a chance that there's something else bigger going on again. Can you can you tell one or two of those stories? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll tell one quickly, and then maybe Lori can think, see if she can think of another one. But one of the ones that happened to us not too long ago is a woman came up and said, uh, she, it was at a sober living facility, and she said she had just recently gotten there. She was a, a heroin user, and she had gone into a grocery store, and they, her car was 
broken. The window on her car was broken, so it was stuck down. Mm-hmm. She went into the grocery store. When she came out of the grocery store, one of our kits was sitting on her front seat. And she didn't know at the time who left it for her, but whoever left it for her obviously had gotten the kit and knew that she was a heroin <coughs> user. So she was grateful to have it. That night, that very night, she went to a party, and when she arrived at the party, uh, she walked in, and everybody was running around like crazy, and they said, so-and-so's overdosing. And she, she was like, oh, my gosh. And then she said, I know what to do. And she ran out to her car. She grabbed our kit. She ran in with it, opened it up, never been trained, opened it up, stuck it up the guy's nose, the Narcan navel spray up the guy's nose, and saved his life. And saved his life. That's incredible. And we just heard of one today where yeah. someone relapsed and he was in the parking lot of a church mm-hmm. and a woman in the church ran out. The church had one of our kids. Wow. We do not know how our kit got to that church, but we have equipped quite a few churches because a lot of times um, HA groups, NA groups, CA groups meet at churches yeah. and they want to have Narcan on site in case someone uses out in the parking lot maybe before they come into the meeting you know maybe that one last time they're going to use and this guy used and um he uh had a bad outcome and uh the woman came out and used our kit um and took three three of our kits and then the emts used some more but eventually they got his heartbeat back and Saves he's he's fine yes. today with um, yeah. cute little kids running around. So that's incredible. Yeah, in recovery. In yes. recovery. Wow. In recovery. Working it and it's helping awesome. other people. So yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, would not have even had a chance to get into recovery. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's a big deal. It yeah, really is. is. So I mean, I know that we have your kits in in all of our sober living houses here on site, and I remember even from the first time, you know, making sure that um, you know the scenes might kind of common sense but even some of the horror stories where they were on site but they were locked up yes and then leaving them out accessible making sure that everybody knows exactly where they are how to use them yeah we have numerous um stories of people three different times where uh there was narcan on site and somebody died yeah because they were either locked up or the people didn't know where it was or you know just didn't how to use whatever and somebody died and that that really is like a knife to the heart for me yeah. because I just think, you know, it's, I mean, it's bad enough anytime, but if there's Narcan there and it wasn't administered, it, it, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So we like for people to keep it in the same place, like in every apartment, if it's a, like a residential facility or whatever, so that yeah. people, if they're visiting somebody, they'll know if they, they need know, to yeah. go get it where it is. A lot of people just keep it on the kitchen table yeah. or on the counter or in a basket. Um, we're always, a lot of times people will say, but what if, People steal it and walk off with it. And we're like, fine, they needed it. We'll give you another one. Yeah. You know, if we have it, we're we're giving them out. Right. So, um, you know, we just want it to be easily accessible to people. And when new people come into a program, they need to be trained on it immediately, mm-hmm. um, not at discharge. You know, some people say, well, let's at discharge, let's train them, and maybe we can try to give them a kit. They they need to have access to it. At yeah. the beginning of their, you know, journey into recovery. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. I mean, it, it's you know, no program wants to, you know, probably entertain or even in, in talk about those things. But the truth is, is that, you know, I mean, drugs get inside maximum security prisons. Yes. And you'd be foolish to think that, 
you know, they wouldn't be able to get inside of a program. Mm -hmm. Relapse happens. Yeah. I mean, relapse happens. That's right. We we wish it didn't, but it does. Yeah. And and Mm -hmm. we just want to protect those people. Yeah. Yeah, we've actually had um, the prison system, the RCEP program has reached out trying to get kits because there are people pursuing recovery in Georgia prisons, but relapses are happening in prison. So you can imagine if people are leaving a site and going working, you know, the the danger's out there. So we just want people to have a tool, you know. Yeah. Second chances. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Or third or fifth or twelfth. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. You know? Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. it took for me. It, <laughs> did. it really did. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you sure. so much for having us. Yeah. I know things have changed a lot here. I mean, when we met, you know, probably close to two years ago. Yes. Yeah. We it's had great. A few staff. And it's great. Yeah, it's clients. a wonderful, wonderful facility. And we uh, really enjoyed our, our training today. Yeah. Great, great group. Really good. Awesome. Thank y'all so much. Thank you. Let's do it again. Yes. We will. We'd love to. Okay. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.